Tonight, however, we're finishing up our series. Well, we're starting the finish of our series, Worship Grow Serve. I'm really excited. After two weeks, we'll be going into what we call an Old Testament survey class and kind of really transitioning into what we've been preaching about here on Wednesday night uh, for quite some time, transitioning, uh, transitioning more into a classroom environment, uh, encouraging you. Uh, this, in fact, one of the first seminary classes I took was Old Testament surveying. So we'll be looking uh, about eight to ten weeks through up to 1 Samuel and looking at it just, a, again, from the bird's eye view of the Old Testament, the part it plays in the thread of the gospel. So um, that's coming in two weeks. But before we get there, I know you're probably thinking, we've already covered worship, grow, serve. What could we possibly be covering now? That's all that it says here on this pamphlet, how in the world are we still going on here? Well, if you notice, and you open up that pamphlet and see in this insert here, uh, we really just have covered the up in each one of these. A little bit of the end in each one of these, but really the up. We focused on uh, why we decided on worship, grow, serve, how it is biblical, its basis in the scriptures for us con connecting the dots here and thinking this is our purpose for the church. And yet, um, the way this is facilitated in three ways is seen in our purpose statement. We worship up, in, and out. We grow up, in, and out. And we serve up, in, and out. And that in and out really is mission. Uh, it really is on mission. And so I kind of want to break that down for you today uh, as we study missions. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 12 and then Matthew 28 too. But I want to start off with this quote there by Charles Spurgeon that says this, If there be any one point in which the Christian church ought to keep its fervor at a white heat, it is concerning missions. If there be anything about which we cannot tolerate lukewarmness, it is the matter of sending the gospel to a dying world. So again, we've seen over the preceding weeks here at First Baptist Church of Gray Gables that we exist to worship, meaning we've been united by faith to the true worshiper, the only real true worshiper, Jesus Christ. We exist to grow, which requires us to constantly have our minds renewed, by the word of Christ, we exist to serve, referring to our commitment to serve one another by the word of Christ. Um, this Today, we finish this series on our purpose statement by considering, again, how our worship, growth, and service must be done in and out. We exist to proclaim the gospel of God's Son, Jesus Christ, to all peoples. So what I'm going to do again, like we've done every week, is I'm going to begin by just grounding this in the Word of God, seeing how it's biblical, and then looking at the church's specific role in the mission of God. And then we'll conclude probably next week by just bringing it right to the congregation and giving some practical application about what this looks like in our day-to-day -day life. So that's, that's the plan. We begin in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 3, considering God's mission, the promise. That's the first thing. God's mission... The promise. We're going to look at uh, just a couple of biblical figures here. Because I don't know about you, but I think we often tend to consider um, missions as a New Testament thing, right? That it was just something that Jesus, at the end of his ministry, was like, oh yeah, God, I can't believe, can't believe I almost forgot about this. Um, you really need to tell people about the gospel. Um, but it's not really. In fact, I would argue that um, even starting with Abraham, Abraham was on mission. It would start before that, but I want to start with Abraham. Abraham, I would argue, uh, was on mission. Really, what we find in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, is a proto -great, prototype Great Commission. Uh, Abraham's mission was to be an instrument 
and the blessings of the families of the earth by God himself. And so go ahead, somebody, if you have Genesis 12 through 3 opened in your scriptures, uh, and you want to slip your hand up and read that, you're welcome to do that. Because I'm not there yet. Go ahead, Travis. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you I will curse. And in, and in you all families of the earth will be blessed. All right, amen. So God calls Abraham to go, and he promises him, all the families in the earth would be blessed. Now, this promise is actually even more powerful and more incredible when we consider the history or division of separation that precedes it. The first division, of course, happening where? The garden. Where it all starts, right? In the Garden of Eden. When the fall of Adam and Eve broke covenant with God, they rebelled against Him. Humanity was broken. Their relationship with creation, with one another, with themselves, it was all broken. But most importantly... There was a relationship with God there that was broken. There was separation and division. The blessing for which they were created, the internal enjoyment of unhindered communion with God was shattered. This division that now existed between God and His people was acted out dramatically when Adam and Eve were driven out from the presence of God in the garden. And in their sin, they were no longer able to enjoy unmediated communion with their Lord. Cherubim and a flaming sword, right, communicated a message loud and clear to them. There is a chasm now lay between God and His people, whose greatest joy was meant to be found in a relationship with their Lord. This division was acted out again as a fractured relationship between people came to its sinful conclusion with the first homicide we have recorded with Cain killing his brother Abel. Worst of all, when Cain was driven from his family, was he was separated from the promise that was carried forth in the seed of the woman. Right? The, the promise given in Genesis 3.15, the one who would crush the serpent's head and overcome our division. By, by far the most dramatic division uh, at that point. Until two chapters later, we see another division. Rain, rain. The primordial history is the great flood after sin spread like gangrene and every intention of the thoughts of people's hearts were only evil continually. People were not only driven from the garden, but were driven from the face of the earth, separated from the land of the living. The flood served as a foreshadowing of that final separation that will take place at the very end. But there's restoration. Until after the flood, the drunkenness of Noah and the shameful response of his son Ham leads to more separation. Noah's three sons are divided through the curse and blessing of Noah. And then there's that emphatic division we all know occurs at the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. Humanity is further separated from each other and presumably from God as the Lord confuses their language and sends the descendants of the three sons of Noah across the face of the earth. These events, by the way, they all take place in the first 11 chapters of the Bible. But, but listen, what they're doing is they're preparing us for this promise that's going to take place in chapter 12. Chapter 12's promise to Abraham, what Travis just read, it has to be read in light of the sin of Adam that fractured humanity. People were broken in rebellion, splintered inside and out. 
The most significant being humanity's separation from God at enmity with their creator. So Travis, now we're ready to read Genesis 12 again. Will you do that for us? Yes, sir. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house into the land which I show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse you I will curse. And all the families of the earth will be blessed. Okay, so listen. Here is the promise that the division that's been growing, the, the curse that was administered at Babel, it is not the final word. God's redemptive plan narrows in on one man here and one man's family. But for what purpose? For the blessing of who? What's it say in verse 3? All people. All the families of the earth. That, that's the blessing. This will be for all the families of the earth. All the division and separation would give way in the end to unity and communion. Enmity and hostility would be replaced by reconciliation and peace. I'm not talking, by the way, simply between people groups, but with God. You know that every division is a side effect of our division with God, right? From God. Being separated from God is being separated from the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. Gentleness, I missed that one. There's no real blessing without having the Lord Himself as our reward. So God's plan was to accomplish the reconciliation of all things to Himself through the seed of Abraham. That was God's plan from the beginning. That's really all I want us to see at this point. Not one nation, but every nation. Every tribe, every tongue. It was not simply ever about Abraham or Israel as just one geopolitical entity, but about God's glory filling the earth. God's promise to bless all the families of the earth puts Abraham on mission. So we should not be surprised, therefore, when we arrive to Israel and find out that Israel had the same mission. Israel was on mission. They were. They were to be an instrument, a blessing to all the families of the earth. Is that how we conceive of Israel? Don't, don't we only look at Israel as separate from us? Right? They were God's chosen people. That's who they are. And yet, their purpose was for the very purpose and reality we're living out right now. For the purpose of the nations, Israel was constituted for the sake of all families of the earth. It was written very much into their DNA that they were a royal priesthood serving as mediators between God and the nations. Read what it says there in Exodus 19.6. It says, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. You think Peter's made that up? In 1 Peter 2? No, it's in Exodus chapter 19. That's the Old Testament. Their life under the law was meant to cause people to wonder at the God who dwelled in their midst. And we're just going to list off some Old Testament verses that talk about the nations. Because I think we really need to look at these. Deuteronomy 4.7 For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? For whatever reason we may call upon Him. And so other people were from the very beginning incorporated into the covenant community. We see that in Deuteronomy 31 verse 12. Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stronger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of His law. 
It's in Joshua 8 as well, 33 through 35. Then all Israel with their elders and officers and judges stood on either side of the ark before the priest. The Levites who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as he who was born among them, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Abal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterward, he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel with the men or with the women, the little ones and the strangers who were living among them. Guys, even the songs they sang were about the nations. Psalm 67 verses 1 and 3. God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Psalm 22, verse 27. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. The prophets as well, Isaiah 19. I actually suggest write down Isaiah 19. Read verses 19 through 25, because I'm only reading 24 through 25. It's a bigger section there. It says, in that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Right, so the New Testament, or the Great Commission is just a New Testament thing, right? No, this isn't a new plan. This is the same plan from the very beginning, that God would reconcile all things to himself through the vehicle seed of Abraham. Isaiah 49.6, referring to the suffering servant who's addressed in Isaiah. Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob to restore the preserved ones uh, of Israel? I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So, of course, Abraham and Israel were on mission. But then God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, who picked up the mantle of that mission and fulfilled it. So we see Jesus was on mission. Wasn't He? Certainly He was. I want to point out just one small piece of narrative that points to it with just clarity. Matthew chapter 21, verses 12 and 13. Somebody want to read that for me? I read all the hard ones for you. Go ahead, Michelle. And Jesus went to the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it den of thieves. Okay, listen to this. You know where they were selling that the Lord calls? You've made my house a house of prayer? You know specifically where he is? He's in the court of the Gentiles. Think about that. This is where the Gentiles worship. Not, not God's people, Israel. The Gentiles worship, the court of the Gentiles. And you know what verse he quotes, by the way, there? It's in Isaiah 56, 6 and 7. Also, the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord to serve him and to love the name of the Lord to be his servants. Everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. All the families of the earth 
blessed by God through the seed of Abraham. And of course, this is exactly what Jesus accomplished, isn't it? Ephesians 2, some of our favorite verses. It's a chunk, so I'll read it. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, see, we have to understand, we were those people. Without that Old Testament promise, none of us, if I think are Jewish, none of us would, would be here today. Who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that all that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you once, who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, that is, the law, the commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in Himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, therefore, through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. So there's been a separation between peoples, but it's been healed. How? By Christ. All things have been reconciled to God by Christ. That's why Paul says in Galatians 3, 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. You know, I remember as a kid, I used to love singing Father Abraham, doing all the motions and such. And I remember one point in time, somebody told me, you know, that's unbiblical. Abraham's not really your father. You're not an Israelite. The dispensationalist. Um, and I responded with, oh, broken heart. I was six at the time. Didn't know theology. But then I read Galatians 3. It's like 25. I thought, and start singing Father Abraham again. <laughs> right? Because it's very clear. Paul makes that clear. If you are in Christ, you are Abraham's seed. You are what God promised in Genesis 12, 3. You are part of the nations of the earth that are blessed to have heard the gospel. Praise God. Psalm 22, most of you know, even if you don't know it is Psalm 22, they're the very words spoken by Jesus as he is on the cross moments before he gave up his spirit. In fact, the first verse of Psalm 22 is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we read at the end of that psalm these words, All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him. Even he who cannot keep himself alive, a posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has done this. Done this. That's the gospel. He's overcome our separation, healed our wounds. He has made a way for us to be reconciled to God, justified in his sight, adopted into his family, that in him we have every spiritual blessing. This is who we are. We, we have to understand this. We are the families of the earth who have been blessed with the promise given to Abraham. This is our place in the story. We are the ends of the earth who remember and have turned from idols to serve the true and living God. We are the families of the nation who are blessed by the seed of Abraham. 
Jesus Christ, to worship Him in spirit and truth. We are His posterity to proclaim He has done this. So that gets us started. So you have to know who you are before you understand what's required of you in the mission. I think too often we think, well, no, I'm God's people and I'm in God's place and I'm under God's rule. They should all come to us. No, 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 no. If they didn't obey the Great Commission, you would have no access to the gospel. You understand this, right? You understand that, right? Okay. I just want to make sure. Because here's where we come to, into the plan. God's plan has always been the church to accomplish this. The church is the one people that He has made. God's mission, the church. That's the second thing we see. God's mission, the promise. We looked at that, and I want us to look at God's mission, the church. Listen, not as the complete fulfillment of that reconciliation, but now as the vehicle or instrument proclaiming that proclamation to the ends of the earth. Who wants to read the Great Commission for us? Go ahead, Justin. You would. Missionary. Go ahead. Jesus came and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe whatsoever I commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay, this is our mission. Just as Abraham was called not just for himself, but for all the families of the earth, might be blessed through him. Just as Israel wasn't called as an end in themselves, but as part of God's redemptive plan to send his son as the promised Messiah, so also the apostles were not simply called for themselves. The first Jewish churches were not constituted simply as an end to themselves. The church was called to bear witness to the mystery of Christ and proclaim it to the end of the earth. And so Paul explains to the Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, he says that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. Colossians 1, 27, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. By the way, that's plural. Paul says, you, plural, the hope of glory. Church, hear me. We, we exist to worship God. We exist to grow. We exist to serve that we may proclaim the gospel of His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You understand that all those things are vehicles for mission. The reason why we worship is so we proclaim Christ and the goodness of Christ, but not just here, but to all the earth. The reason we grow so we can have a better understanding for our proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And the reason we serve one another so that people would look in and see and in that we'd have an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. Listen, none of these things can be separated. You know that, right? It's not worship over here, then we grow over here, then if we have time, we serve there, and then if we have more time than that, it'll lead us finally to proclaim the gospel. On Saturdays, though, between 9 and 10 a.m., no, all these things belong together. They all flow from worship, grounded in who we are in Christ as the true worshiper, the one who's overcome the, uh, the separation, brought about the healing of our division from God. Friends, we have to understand this. Every church is on mission. We have inherited the Great Commission. 
Jesus Christ is the only grounds for the blessing of God to all the families of the earth. There is no other way to receive that blessing which was promised in Genesis 12. There's no other way to be reconciled to God, healed of our brokenness, and made new creations fit for eternal life. Jesus is the only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's now peace between God and people only through faith in Jesus Christ. And God's plan was, is, and will be until Christ returns for His pride, His people, to be heralds of this incredibly, exceedingly good news. Hearing the gospel with faith is the only means of receiving the blessing of God. And we carry that message. It is our privilege and our responsibility. Listen, praise God for missionaries. I really do praise God for missionaries. That's one way we participate in this mission. But hear me. The gospel of Jesus Christ didn't permeate the entire Roman Empire through the work of Paul and Silas alone. If you have that conception, it's a wrong conception. Barnabas and Mark were important instruments in the spread of the gospel. But they were not really the primary instruments. You know who was? It was the church. The church who both proclaimed the message and just as importantly bore witness to that message that transformed an entire empire. Paul wrote to the church of Philippi in Philippians 1.7. He said, For inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel... You are all partakers with me of grace. You remember what he wrote to Thessalonica in chapter 1? Remember what they said in Macedonia? For from you, church, plural, young church. Paul was there four months. Young church. From you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out. And here's, here's where we need to understand uh, part of our role here. The church is particularly, I want to focus on this, we are particularly called to bear witness to the authenticity of the gospel. This is in our lives together. I want you to know that. You and I were called both to bear witness to the fact that this gospel is authentic. It's my assertion that really this is the starting point of evangelism. Any talk of evangelization, uh, evangelization, of proclaiming the gospel, any talk of that has to start here. It's why in is a focus level for our worship, grow, serve. Because it starts with the witness of the church and their community life together. I'm going to attempt to explain what I mean by that. What I mean by that is when we talk about evangelism and missions, many churches focus a lot of their resources, their time, their money, their energy on things like outreach programs and evangelistic efforts, they say. And that's understandable, right? Especially in light of everything I just said. But it's rarely done well. And the end result is often entertaining events and nominal Christians. So what do we do? In fact, we've got this so backwards, guys. I want you to think about this. I think it was Miss Becky and Miss Donald talking about this a long time ago. With uh, Most of the time when I hear about missions that this church has done together in the last 20, 30 years, you remember the number one thing people talk about is the camaraderie of serving together and being together. That's great, right? It is. If you've served on mission with somebody, you do grow closer. You know what often suffers because of that, though? The actual mission. 
we're so focused on the fact that this person we don't get to spend a whole lot of time with is finally somebody we're actually serving with that we're not even really focused on the mission as much as, oh, this community thing is great. Don't we have that backwards? Don't we have all the time in the world here to have community with one another? To get to serve one another within the confines of the local church? And, and then when we do that, we can actually have the togetherness to go and really just make it about the mission. Because we've already got the camaraderie. So we got it backwards. We plan trips in order to have camaraderie instead of just having camaraderie here so we can go and plan where we can take the gospel next. It's backwards. It, it's the case. I get it. I've been a part of it. I know that. So, okay, well, what do we do? Well, here's what we do first. And this is the starting point. Corporately, we need to bear witness to the gospel by our loving unity. It has to start there, church. It has to. Our primary concern is the glory of God. Our primary task is His worship. Living in dependence to God and His service to Him. That's the starting point. We want God's glory to fill the earth. We want His will done on earth as it is in heaven. So the church first and foremost is a society of worshipers and Christ followers. And when we're learning to worship God with our whole heart devotion, and when we're growing in our desire and ability to follow Jesus, to serve Him with every thought, with every word, with every deed, when we're growing in love for one another and in our unity, what we're doing is we are authenticating the gospel we proclaim. We're bearing witness to it. And this is God's plan for the church. You've heard of John 13, 35, hadn't you? By this, all men will know you are my disciples. How? By those super awesome parties you throw with all the floats and slides and stuff. By the, by the, the evangelistic efforts that say, come get baptized and get a free t-shirt. No. How? By the way you love one another. And then just a little while later, he prayed the disciples would be so unified that he actually said to his father that the world may know that you have sent me. You give them unity so that the world would know that you sent me. How would the world know that those proclaiming the message actually belong to Christ? By their love for one another. How did they know that Jesus was actually sent by his father to do and say the things he did and said? By our unity. Guys, this isn't optional. <laughs> it's the starting point. Despite the emphasis of the evangelical culture, the emphasis in the scriptures is on our life together. Just do this. Make a note of this. I want you to do this. Make a note of every verse that actually commands Christians to proclaim the gospel and line it up against every verse that commands Christians to do life together with everything that means. You can just do it in your head real quick. Really, the lists aren't even comparable. Now, does that mean we shouldn't share the gospel? No. But that means this is the starting point. Life together. So let me ask you. Are we living our lives together? Are our lives together on display in such a way that it bears witness to the gospel? I really don't want anyone to hear me saying that evangelism is not important. <laughs> Obviously. We're going to get there. But our lives together, listen, our lives together are important because of evangelism. 
proclaiming Christ and living in such a way that invites others to revile the word of God is not an option. And I'm afraid that's what the church has been doing for several years. We, 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 when we proclaim the gospel, which is rare, we're inviting them into nothing but dysfunction and disunity and unlovingness between one another. That's backwards. So Paul writes to the young wives in Titus 2. What does he say? He says, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their husbands, to their own husbands. Why? That the word of God may not be blasphemed. Why should they labor to be submissive to their husbands, to be self-controlled, to be pure? For their own kudos? No. So they don't give anyone the opportunity to revile the word of God that is being proclaimed. A few verses later, talking to slaves, he says, not pilfering, but showing all good fidelity that they may adorn the, God, the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Friends, listen, our lives are to adorn the gospel. That's what your life is supposed to be about. The world will know we follow Christ by our love for one another, our unity, and our obedience of faith. Again, I'm not saying the message is not meant to be proclaimed. I'm saying that the message is meant to be affirmed by how we live our lives together. We are called to live lives not individually, but corporately that are worthy of the gospel. Our lives are to bear witness to the good news that Jesus has died to save sinners, that he has redeemed them of the power of guilt and sin. Now, listen, there's a risk in saying what I just said, and I realize that. What we're not called to do, hear me, what we're not called to do is to pretend to be holier and more loving to each other than we really are. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to put on a show as though we've never sinned. We don't keep all of our skeletons in the closet and the dirt swept underneath the bed so that when people come in, we can say, see, the gospel's true, look how holy I am. That's not the point. Sacrificial love for one another adorns the gospel of our God. A community demonstrating forgiveness towards one another as they've been forgiven in Christ adorns the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Love, forgiveness, a society of Jesus followers who are united not by their socioeconomic status, not by their race, not by their playlist, not by their hobbies, not by their seasons of life, or any other reason than that they've been bought and purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ. They adorn the gospel. They have one Father, united by one Spirit, with access to the one Father through the one Christ. A community that demonstrates a reversal of the division in the garden. That is the community that adorns the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, we're pursuing holiness together as we should. But listen, even our failures and our struggles repented of before a loving and forgiving God in Christ adorns the gospel. So that, that's really the question. We're going to launch into all the strategy we've got mission-wise next week. But, but it starts here. Ask the question, am I living my life together with the church? It, how and doing my life with these people to my left and right, am I adorning the gospel so that when guests come here, when people who we will, Lord willing, share the gospel with enter into this place, they see family.
And they begin to wonder why in a culture where everybody wants to stay as far apart as they can from each other and not really have any close friends or speak to one another, why these people show such love, openness, care, respect, honor, and thankfulness for each other. It'll adorn the gospel message. So we ask that question. Are we living life together with this church in a way that adorns the gospel? Thank God for His grace. That it's His kingdom, that it's His building, right? We trust Him to bring that forth. And listen, guys, can I tell you, I see it. I see the fight for it, at least. It's not perfect. It's not perfect. And I have a tendency to compare it with other churches and presume things that I know. But I see the fight for it, and there's nothing to warrant my heart more. You know why? Because it's missional. Because I really believe that when people see that, it adorns the gospel. It's the number one thing I hear from guests at this church. The family atmosphere that we had was so inviting. Oh, man, praise God. Now, we're going to talk next week where uh, I think we're struggling a little bit. But for now, just ask yourself that question. Am I living life together in such a way where I'm adorning the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? I didn't look at my... my oh, cool. That's nice. Um, all right. Any questions, thoughts, comments, or concerns? Nothing. I just think that if you look at the Great Commission and you talk about unity, to for the church to go out and evangelize and to share the gospel to a world that doesn't see that unity, it's, it's you know, the two have to go together. Right. Right? Even when Jesus in the, in the Great Commission tells, go and teach what I've commanded you, well, what was he? What was his response to? What is the greatest command? To love the Lord your God, all your heart, and, and also your neighbor. Right. And so it just, you know, I don't know. I, I guess I just never seen it uh, for for what it is and, and, and the weight that it carries. Right. The unity. I mean, you look at what's going on today with the SEC and what the world sees in that. You know. Uh, is what this unity? That's the most. Do you think they want to hear about our gospel when they when we are fighting amongst ourselves? Mm -hmm. It's very disheartening. Well, and not to blame a particular thing, but when you have access, again, this is why the way you use social media is important. Because even there, you're display love for one another and brothers in Christ, and there ain't no love displayed right there. Twitter, you can find all the hate in the world. Facebook and Twitter when it comes to even things within the church. That's why, by the way, God has given us a means by which we strive for holiness together. You know what it is? It's called church discipline. Church discipline is not, let me see what I can complain about before the entire world about the church. Church discipline is when I see sin in my brother or sister's life, I love them enough to go and approach them in humility and kindness about it. Like, it, it's driven by love. Why? 1 Corinthians 5. Why in the world did they want to get that guy who was sleeping with his dad's wife or whatever out of the church? Because he wore the name Christian. And people were looking at that pro proposed Christian, assuming that's what it meant to be a Christian. That's not adorning to the gospel. That's how we deal with holiness. 
And yet what we've done is we've blasted brothers and sisters in Christ we will never even meet in front of a lost and dying world. That doesn't adorn the gospel. So, so just remember, I just I love you. Remember, as you go to that keyboard, just remember that song my mom used to make me sing from Philippians 2. Do everything without complaining. Do everything without arguing so that we may become blameless and pure children of God. And I would add, for the mission. <laughs> I mean, just remember it, really. It's, it's scary, the access we have, absolutely. Anybody else? Yeah, go ahead, Bono. Are, are we living it and carrying it with us 24-7? It's not a part-time. It's not. 24-7. And it's not optional. It's not something we put on on Sunday mornings, Wednesday nights. It's a life together. So forgive me for those of you who haven't contacted or texted this week. Hopefully you did receive one in the last month or so. All right, anybody else? All right, I'm excited about next week. Really am, because we do have strategy here. It's not a strategy you probably think it is, but it's strategy. Uh, let me pray for you. You'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for our time together in your word. Thank you for the love we have between the brethren here. Lord, just encourage our hearts, Father, that we would display unity and the truth, that, Lord, you give us the correct and right attitudes and avenues by which we are to discipline one another and, and grow and be convicted and, and strive for holiness, Father. You've given us those things in your word clearly. Father, help us to always remember that we are on mission, that our love for one another is the starting point for bearing witness to the authenticity of the gospel so that we proclaim the gospel to the nations. Father, would you help us with that endeavor? Would you cause us to grow closer together as a body? Lord, I'm thankful for these men and women in this room. I'm thankful for their hearts for you. I'm thankful that you're there united to us as part of the church. Lord, they are loved by their pastor, but more importantly, by you. Be with us now as we go and live on our mission. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.